They shoot the shit. They shoot, they shoot the shit. Shoot, 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 shit, shit, shit. Shooting the shit with Chippa. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another fun-filled episode of Shooting the Shit with Chippa, a.k.a. Well, a.k.a. No, as always, I'm Chris Chipman, a.k.a. The Chippa. Um, the maker of four different podcasts that you know and love, The Chipman Brothers Tangent, Creating Geeks, this show and the Talkbuster podcast all about Blockbuster Video. And hey, I have something to pitch for you. If you're listening to this show right now, if I had 150 patrons, one of you is winning a signed copy of the last Blockbuster documentary. You've heard me interview that director twice, Taylor Morden and Sandy Harding from The Last Store in the World on this show, or on that show, should I say, many times. You want to own this movie. It's an incredible love letter to a world that is almost gone, the world of video rental. And I'd like to say hashtag save the video store to help out our friends over at family video in the midwest who are still going strong even though the pandemic is trying to take them out so get on over find them share their stuff hopefully they'll be doing some sort of kickstarter campaign or something to keep the business going um as always on the show before i introduce my very 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 special guest today i'd like to thank my 15 dollar or more a month patrons they are Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, Kevin C.V., Mike the Gatherer, Tyler Freshcorn, Mark Price, Collaborating Online, Alex Shaw, Seth Comfort, Seth Decker, Andrew Krause, Little Nikki, Robert V. Aldrich, Aaron Moriarty, Carolyn Thompson, Scott Arcuri, and Shior Hansen Gusted. And to my newest patrons, Ralph Lund, Luke Donnelly, Tom Painter, Cassandra Rigucci, Carolyn Thompson, Brian Beshia. Patrick R. Young, Scott R. Curie, and Chris Charles, thank you so much. <clears throat> this show, as a lot of my shows are, is brought to you by the Geeks with Shields podcast. The Geeks with Shields podcast. Each week, hosts Axel and Ulrich provide a nerdy escape from the darkest timeline, talking everything from comics to long-forgotten movies and TV shows. If the darkest timeline has you down, check out the Geeks with Shields podcast for all your nerdy needs. And today is a guest that I probably would not have even thought of reaching out to had I not um, gotten a mutual love for his works from my uh, my friends over at Geeks with Shields. I want to welcome Graham McNeil, author, video game writer, awesome guy. I'll let you go down the whole list, but thank you so much. It is an honor to have you here today. Uh, my absolute pleasure to come on, Chris. Looking forward to chatting and getting into it. So, hey, um, you know, those of you who have either listened to my show, my show with my friends from the Geeks with Shields on or the Geeks with Shields podcast and found me through them. They did a book club um, during this pandemic and the book club had us start reading the Horace Heresy um, books. And we started with, you know, the very first book of the <laughs> Horace Heresy and moved on into False Gods by author Graham McNeil, which is one of the finest pieces of fantasy I have ever read. I didn't know um, how these novels were. I knew Warhammer, um, you know, as that game that my friends played on the table with the big action figures at Games Workshop. I didn't know there was a deep-seated D&D depth-level set of lore and video games and all this other stuff, and I'm learning more and more about it every day. So, um, Graham, what, what got you, you know, from, you know, wh where you were, um, you know, growing up to into fantasy novels, or and what got you to mm -hmm. work? Like, to, well, let's let's talk about that. 
Okay. Uh, I mean, that's, that's going going back a long way into the, the mist of time. Yes. Um, I think I was I was about uh, 11, or, 11 or so, and my mum my was taking me around various bookstores and so on because she was... Uh, I was going to be sitting some exams uh, for entrance to a school, and so my mum was dragging me around all these bookshops for, you know, cliff notes, past papers to help me revise for this exam. And after the, a full day of this, I was, as any 11-year-old would be, bored out of my nut at this point. And in the final <laughs> bookstore we were in, my mum was like, okay, you've been a really good boy all day. You can pick a book, any book in the store, and I'll buy it for you. So I was like, okay, great. Okay, here, we'll, we'll see what we've got. So I wandered this, you know, old bookshop, you know, the, the Mogai bookshop in Glasgow, and I picked up a copy of this book. And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. It's got a cool wizardy guy and dragon coming at this mystical orb in the front. That looks kind of cool. And I'd, I'd not long read uh, The Hobbit, so I was kind of in my, my dragon space at that point. So I looked at this and thought, yeah, this is good. What is this? And it was a, it was a book called uh, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which oh. uh, was one of the first, if, well, it was the first of the uh, fighting fantasy game books by Ian Livingston and Steve Jackson. And I, you know, I still have that copy uh, autographed now by Ian Livingston up in my bookshelf there. And, you know, I read, I bought this thinking, you know, it was just a regular you know, fantasy book. But then when I, I got home and I looked into it, I was like, wait a minute, what? There's rules for this? And you turn, you go west, you turn to page 50? What the, the hell is this? But I just, you know, I fell in love with it at that point just this idea that i was the hero of the story and i could choose the direction of the, the story and the book just blew me away at that point so i, I got the second the third one and i you know i collected the whole lot of them loved them this these immersive fantasy worlds this idea that you could create the story um and once i'd gone through all them you know i'd played them over and over and over again i moved into uh dungeons and dragons because i was like okay well what if i don't want to go left or right what if i want to go back the way I came, or what if I wanted to do something else? You know, the idea of the more freeform thing uh, was really lodged in me, so I went to Dungeons & Dragons, and, you know, I, I played a bunch of that as a player, but then I quickly found that, you know, my real love for Dungeons & Dragons and role-playing games in general was running them, as being a, a DM or a keeper or whatever. Uh -huh. So I, I ended up doing that. I started running a whole bunch of D&D &D modules and Call of Cthulhu scenarios that I got from uh, issues of White Dwarf, you know, back when it was a, a general hobby magazine rather than a specifically Games Workshop one. So I ran a whole bunch of D&D for our, our, our friend, my friends and so on around Bishop Briggs where I grew up. And gradually that, you know, the, the storyteller in me kind of wanted bigger stories, grander things rather than just a dungeon crawl or a, you know, fight the bandits kind of thing. It was fate of nations and save the world kind of thing. But they always ended up in like giant battles and giant battles are not, <laughs> they're not what D and D or any kind of role-playing system is set up to handle. Right. So I ended up getting the, the uh, AD and D battle system, which was great. You know, I enjoyed using that, but again, it was a little bit cumbersome and quite unwieldy. And then a friend of mine said, Hey, there's this thing called Warhammer. Should, yeah, that's pretty cool. And you get to use figures and stuff. Uh, so I wandered into the Glasgow games workshop and picked up the, third edition Warhammer Fantasy Battle and that was it. You know, that was the slippery slope turned into, you know, a cliff that I fell off at that point. Played a whole now, bunch of Warhammer. And, and now yeah, you exactly. own three homes worth of toys and it's wonderful. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, yeah, from Warhammer, 
you know, my role playing sort of not fell away, but the, the tabletop gaming became much, much more important and the collecting of the models, the collecting of the armies and, you know, my my gaming became it was very story always has been very story driven. You know, it wasn't just the case of I turn up with my army, you turn up with yours, we fight. You know, I would always make a story up for why the armies were there, <clears throat> what the objective is, what the outcome of it was, and that would lead into the next one. So I, before I actually even knew what I was doing, you know, I was creating like narrative campaigns for the games that we're playing. And, you know, after, I don't know, a year, year and a half, I had like ring binder after ring binder filled with characters and stories and arcs that I was like, actually, I should put these together and, and do something with that. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. I started when I was in high school, I started writing uh, my first sort of, uh, 40k novel, which ultimately never went anywhere but a lot of the the ideas and concepts in that have survived because there's I, you know when i came back to look at them to do this properly it's like actually some of this is some of this is all right actually i might use this and you know so the, you know the very very first thing i ever wrote back in like, when i was like 14 or something had a had a, a dark angel character in it called uriel ventress who ended up over the years morphing into an ultramarine captain called uriel ventress in a series of books yes. that i wrote so yeah it's a from you know, the gateway drug of fighting fantasy to D&D to Warhammer to 40k and, you know, everything, everything beyond and beside that. Wow, that's, you know, it, it's crazy when you talk to somebody that, you know, the more you learn, the name becomes so embedded in, you know, what has made that thing what it is today, right? Like, you know, I mentioned mm -hmm. to a friend, you know, I'm, I'm having, um, you know, an, an author that wrote some Warhammer books on, you know, and they were like, Oh, which one? I'm like, Graham McNeil. And they're like, Oh my God. Cause they're like, you know, way into where they go. That's like the guy. And I'm like, well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's so cool when you can hear still in today's world that you got into something cause you were a fan of it. So the existing, oh, yeah, the existing baseline of, you know, the foundation of it was there. And then you got to become part of that eternal lore and uh, shape it and point it in a direction that, you know, no, you I thought could, yeah, was cool. I, I can still look back at moments when we were sitting, you know, we we're in my mom and dad's back room playing Epic with, you know, with Primarchs on the table and going, Oh man, these reading these stories out to each other. And this is great. It's amazing. It'd be, Oh, could you imagine doing this as if this, this was your job, man, that'd be the best job of the world. And then, you know, fast forward 10, 15 years. It's like, Oh, that is my job now. And I am getting to write that, and it's I, you know, I've, the good thing is I, I feel I've never lost that feeling of that kid in his mum and dad's back room going, "This is so cool, I love," you know. That's still you know every day, whether it's you know whatever I'm doing, you know, whether it's writing a, a short story for one of the champions at League of Legends or a, a short story for Black Library or whatever it was, I, I still have that love. I'm getting to write stories about wizards and goblins and dragons that <laughs> people pay me for. This is amazing. And I think that, that just, that's that's what you, I think. If you're going to do that for a living, you need that because you know readers can tell. You know, if, they, if you're half half arse in something or your heart's not in it, the reader knows. Right, and and you know when it's something like the the, the fandom for this, you know, because of like when my external knowledge of Warhammer knew that, you know, okay, this is, these are stories about, you know, like space societies that have moved on past earth. And, you know, just, you look at the military view. I didn't know that there were like demons and mm -hmm. other stuff in it until I started reading this novel. I thought it was just, you know, 
like Starship Troopers, like Star you know, mil- mi- mi- yeah. or yeah, mi- mi- militarized, you know, uh, space space military that you know has some edge lordy stuff in the fandom. And then when I read <laughs> the books, I'm like, not only is that not it, it's so much more. But the books recognize that, and they make it a central core ethical and moral challenge to the characters in the book. Mm-hmm. And I I found that fascinating that uh, that any sort of you know, it, it's like when you watch Star Wars and Star Wars, you know, can can have a movie like Rogue One that makes you go, hey, you know, you've been following these rebels and, you know, yeah, they should be the good guys and the space fascists should be the bad guys. Like, what if we gave you a movie where you kind of looked and said, you know, there's muddy stuff in all directions. Oh, and for sure. and that and, and I and I loved like that was the thing that took me so much about these three books was that, you know, they had times where it's like I'm following a character that's that's you know an ultramarine a space marine like this guy should be very one note and instead they humanize him and make it so his character has depth and so because the book puts you in his shoes you then empathize with him so then you end up with a scenario like when they have to save Horace's life and they barrel ass through the dock and murder mm-hmm. a whole bunch of people just because they have their mind laser focused on one thing and then the book kind of goes hey that guy you've been empathizing with and all these people there's still classism and like elitism mm-hmm. and these and it's like you still have to deal with that and they it, it's just such a brilliant way and it, it's it's respecting and understanding your fandom to know that i can do this and not split people. People aren't going to like walk away from it and go, all oh, these books are terrible now because they no. instead it's a, no, this makes it more interesting that it's not just black and white and it makes the battles and oh, the lore yeah. all that more interesting. And yeah, I, I mean, those, those shades, sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. sorry carry on. No, I was just saying that, that, that those spaces to occupy in a story, those, those sort of morally ambiguous spaces where nothing is as clear cut as it, you know, when, when decisions for the characters are like, well, do I, do I eat the baby or save the baby? I mean, that's <laughs> oh, I mean, unless you're a chaos guy, then that's like you know the choice is reversed. But you know, generally speaking, if for most characters, if you when you give them a choice that is blatantly easy, it's not a choice. Then it's not interesting to read. You know, you want to read about characters in crisis because that's where their true character comes out. You know, when when you put people under the pressure of a vice you see interesting things coming out. And the Horus Heresy is possibly, the, you know, is a very extreme example of that in terms of what we're putting the characters through. And that's that's where the, you know, the interesting story juice comes out when you put people in positions where you challenge the reader's assumption about what they think they are. You know, the idea that space marines are the good guys is broadly speaking kind yep. of true. But actually, you know, these are seven foot tall genetically engineered killing machines and that's you know the that's kind of what they were designed to do although you know they, they evolve over time in the stories to become so much more than that or they, they want to become so much more than that but that's basically what they are and if you're in their way you best not be yeah and those, and, those are and, interesting space to explore and i love that there's differing levels of that too now be, because you know my my knowledge, my intro into this is strictly in, in the 40K land. Now they, I've, I've definitely had, you know, they, they did that intentionally. So like the chaos thing was a surprise to me. 
you know, and the yeah. the things like Samus, you know, and things like that showing up are more surprising. So I feel like I'm dealing with humans, and then it's like, okay, are they? Is are there gods? Are there demons? Is this all BS? It it was all more of a red herring and a surprise to me. Um, yeah. But when you came into it, like when you started playing, was it already into the full, like what? Because I know there's Warhammer Fantasy and there's Warhammer 40k. Uh-huh. Did those come about the same time? Because I know they all exist in the same universe. But um, or uh, was it? Or was 40k company, like an universe. earlier thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they don't. They, you know, Warhammer and 40k are, are two. They're, they're they're both games workshop universes, but they're not together. They're not like right. You're not no, no. Of, travel of around course. 40k and run into the Warhammer world sort of thing. But anyway, yes. Um, the I mean, Warhammer's been around a lot longer than 40k. Uh, and you know, my understanding of it was that 40k was kind of like a I call this a little diversion that will drop drop into and do a little bit of space warry type stuff because it's fun and we can do it, and then we'll just carry on with the serious proper business of Warhammer. Then obviously, Forty K just was a massive hit. Really took off and latched onto the imaginations of everybody, and it became this sort of thundering juggernaut that you know still still is with us, thankfully to this to this day. That's awesome. Was was your intro to it through Forty K or through um, yeah. Warhammer proper? Yeah, I, mean, I, I I played Warhammer as a sort of as, as the extension of D anD D when when my campaigns got. To the point where we needed to have nations at war, and you know, then uh-huh. we'd get the pictures out and so on. So I played that for for years, and uh, until I think it was 1984, 85, that Rogue Trader, which was the first uh, 40k rulebook, came out, and I, you know, I, I bought that, and that that book just floored me at the time when I read it. Just you know, because the original background of the Imperium as it was written was, you know, it was so gritty and dark and smoky and dusty and cobwebby and you know the art in it was so dark and it all looked like etched woodcuts in the pages it was like nothing i'd ever seen before you know i'd seen you know echoes of of that in you know john blanche and ian miller's uh-huh. work and so on with warhammer but the 40k universe just it blew me away because you know at the time we were still kind of let's say 84 would have been just coming off the high of return of the jedi at the time and star trek and so on so everything was kind of this sort of the future was kind of black and white good guys bad guys you know we will ultimately prevail and the federation will save us all then this kind of bomb dropped in the middle of this saying no nope, the future's all horrible everybody's dying the emperor's a rotting writhing corpse that eats the soul of a thousand psychers a day to stay alive and uh-huh. if you see a space green drop to your knees in terror because if he's here, something really, really, really bad is happening. So there's that notion of going from the Star Trek, Star Wars vibe of sci-fi to to what Rogue Trader presented was like a shot in the arm to me. Because I mean, I don't get me wrong, I love those things and still do. But seeing that, was like I've never seen this ever anything like this before. Just inject it directly into my eyeballs now, please. So yeah, yeah I, once I got 40k, it was like that's it. I'm done. And that, that, that I think is, I felt that now, uh, coming into it now, you know, my, my fantasy novels, you know, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, yeah. you know, Star yeah. Trek, sci-fi, but my college, you know, cause I, as, as a reader, I, I do much better with, with audio books because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a visual, I'm, I'm cinematic. So if I, if yeah. I can turn my brain, my eyes, the reading portion of it off, I can visualize more what's going on. So hearing someone read these books. 
blew me mm-hmm. away. But when I was when I was reading fantasy hardcore, um, I had gotten into um, the stuff with the Dark Elves. Uh, you know, in, yeah. in the the D the D and D Icewind Dale. You know, you go in and all all those things, and with with Dritz Jordan and all yeah, that. Just, you know, yeah. So there's my like my hardcore like into it fantasy was there. So to, you know, have someone tell me, yeah, these are, you know, fantasy novels. And I'm like, well, everything I've seen of Warhammer is like militarized and, you know, like angry and dark and gritty and, and scary, you know? And I'm like, and then to read mm-hmm. it and see how it plays out. I'm just like, this is an itch that that world is missing a, a scratching post for, you know, on a lot of it. Yeah, and I yeah. think it, and I got it. I can't, I can only imagine this in 84, you know, let alone, yeah. let alone me reading it, in, you know, 2019, well, you know, yeah, I mean, like a lot, like a lot of things, like a lot of things that came out of Britain in the eighties, it was, it was a universe and a tone and a feel that was very, very much shaped by Britain in the eighties, you know, and the, the grip of, you know, Thatcher's Britain and yep. shortages and strikes and doom and gloom and, you know, uh, three day weeks. I mean, that was years, a few years earlier, but the effects of it were still being felt and, the sensibilities of 40k and and Warhammer are very much those that sort of come out of this sort of grim, rain-soaked island kind of vibe to it. So there's a very Britishness to the the theme and the feel of what uh, Warhammer and especially 40k uh, took into its you know the mixing bowl that, that makes it what it is. That's amazing. Was um. When did you start, like, when did you officially start working and writing um, with, with the Games Workshop Black Library folks? Was that, like, in the 80s? Were you in, like, your late no, teens, God, early no. 20s? Or? <laughs> no, I, I, you know, the, the notion that I could ever do something like that just never kind of lodged in my mind. You know, the idea of being an author or being a games developer is something that's like, that's, that's not a career. Nobody does that. Only strange beings from yep. alternate realities can do that. How, how do you ever, how do you get to do a thing like that? But uh, so I, you know, I, I pursued the regular, you know, I went, finished school, went to university, did, did a couple of degrees, went to work. Um, but then, you know, work as in a traditional sense of things, they ended up sort of just crushing me to the point where I, was like, uh-huh. I can't do this anymore. Uh, and it was a, a day of epiphany of like, I can't, I, there's no fucking way I can do this for the rest of my life. This is just going <laughs> to kill me. But hey, the only, the only thing I'm, I think I'm good at, I don't know, but the only thing I think I'm good at is writing stories about wizards and goblins and dragons and spaceships. And who the hell's going to pay me to do that for a living? Jesus. Um, and that, this, that, you know, it was it was a synchronous moment in my life because I, I went down to because I was working in an architect's office in Glasgow at the time, and I went down to the, the little little shop underneath our offices and picked up that month's issue of White Dwarf, you know, uh, Games Workshop's gaming magazine. And there was an advert in it that, that issue for a staff writer position at <gasps> Games Workshop down in Nottingham, and I, I looked at it and, and you know I was my my brain was after the day I just had my brain was primed. So when I saw that, I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to fucking apply for that. I'm going to apply for that. And do you know what? The worst that can happen is they tell me to get lost. No way. We don't want your type around here sort of thing. So I was like, okay. So I filled in the application form, sent off a few writing samples, uh, did a couple of, you know, unusual interviews down at Nottingham, uh, down in Games Workshop's headquarters. And I was I was lucky enough or whatever to get through the, the process. And they, they offered me the job. So it was 
I started there in February of 2000. I started there, so uh, yeah, I think I'd worked I'd worked in the architect's office for about three years by that point, two years maybe. <laughs> I didn't after all those years at university. I didn't don't know that I gave it that much of a, sh- a shot before deciding. Nah, I want to write stories. Uh, man after my own heart. I'm a I'm a mechanical engineer. And my, my original thing I wanted to go to college for was architecture actually. And, wow. um, and I'm, so it's, and it's just amazing. Like, you know, how you find these connections with people, but, um, you know, I ask myself that that's, that's part of why I, I started doing these shows is my, my brother's a film critic and he said, Chris, mm-hmm. you've always been so creative. He says, but you're so bogged down with your, with your job and, you know, your wife and kids and daily life because you need, you need a, an outlet. And so, yeah. He said, me and you should do a podcast. Little did I know he wanted to do it and gift it to me. And that became all of this other <laughs> stuff. So I'm, I'm sitting here today, not quite, you know, leaving my job behind and writing for one of the biggest, you know, fantasy novel and action figure and just, you know, games manufacturers in the world. But I'm getting to talk to a guy that did. So that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> I think, I think no. we all need, we all need that. Yes. Some, uh, some outlet of creativity, you know, yeah. something that is it allows you to express whatever it is is inside you. You know, you, we're, we're not defined by I'm an architect, I'm a, you know, accountant, I'm a driver or whatever it is, you know, everything, every one of us has something inside of us to give artistically, creatively. And I think that, you know, whatever that is, acting, music, song, artistry, painting, writing, hanging out a podcast doing whatever it is we all should find that thing that just gives us even just a fleeting moment of happiness that we can do that says yeah this is something i'm doing i'm creating this whatever it is from small to large i think we all need that absolutely couldn't have said it better you know before before i dive into the uh you know so you you know you're working for games workshop now and you're you're writing this stuff i wanted to do a quick aside i forgot to say it at the beginning you know for a a guy who's is a few years older than me. We, we don't have to say how many, but a few years older than <laughs> me. Um, you know, you said, you know, you started this job in 2000. I was, you know, finishing high school, starting college around that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, just started working at Blockbuster. So, you know, kind of found my my first love of a job, mm-hmm. you know, then too. That kind of defined who I was for the rest of my life, to tell you the yeah. truth. But um, around that time, I was in college and in high school and watching um, a lot of early it's so funny that 2000 is the early doldrums of the internet video days, but, but it was, um, <laughs> it was, yeah. you know, uh, and I saw you're drinking out of a coffee mug with one of my favorites and, you know, say political <laughs> correctness did away with this. That's fine. Um, you know, the, this is extremely childish and I don't care, but everybody out there, we have a familiar on the phone right now. Because Graham McNeil has a salad fingers cup. And for anybody that knows what that is, <laughs> um, was that yeah. a, you know, because w- w- I know the, who, who, what was the name of the gentleman that made that? He was, he was a funny bastard. Um, oh, your, I can't remember offhand. I, I, yeah. He, he was just, he, he was so good at dealing with trolls, he, you know, and stuff like oh, people yeah. that would say your stuff is abysmal and he would just respond in the funniest, funniest ways. But um, for those that do know what Salad Fingers is, um, you know, the nettles make the red water come out, as, as it were. <laughs> and um, I just, I, as an aside, I just want to know how happy that made me. It's like, you, you don't know what you're getting into when you meet someone the first time. And I'm like, wow, 
God, <laughs> this 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 guy is just right on the level. Sets a baseline. If somebody recognizes it and are horrified, you're on thin ice. But if somebody recognizes it and goes, "Oh man, I love that guy," we're all good. Oh, this is going to be great. I, I think there's a fish caught in the back of the oven. <laughs> the oven. <laughs> children. Yes. It was, it was deliciously dark. I, I did. I did love. You know, we. I remember us. What we were watching the videos. You know, it's a games workshop. You know, we we came across this and thought, we're like, what the hell is this? And it's really wrong, but this is so good. It's just deranged. It's absolutely it's deranged. He is. Yeah, and, I, you I, know, I, I, fell, I fell in love with them and thought, oh, you know, I need to, ha- I need to have that. I need to get that. Oh, and no, this, this I, mug's with me for like decades. At least a couple of decades and a half. I, I need it now. As soon as I saw that that existed, I'm like, I, I want everybody to ask so that I can go, <laughs> I will send you a link. And then if I never hear from you again, that's fine. <laughs> no, but uh, just, just, just a fun aside, um, you know, back, back to, you know, getting into games workshop. So what were you kind of, uh, you know, not, not having the knowledge of how something like that works, you know, there's, there's companies I imagine do things different ways. And, a thing like D and D or Warhammer or something that's just so big, is there like a strong like choke on what your ability to do? Because I know you worked on like the codexes and things. Like how mm-hmm. how did you kind of get from okay, I'm hired, I'm a staff writer, into I'm writing whole novels? Like how what was the kind yeah. of walk into that? That was well, when the staff writer position, as it was advertised, and as was kind of expected when I first got to. So Nottingham was very much more kind of a technical writing, you know, like we want you to write uh, articles about painting this model, you know, interview the painters or the sculptors who did it so that, you know, the players can try and follow their example or do a, a, a journalistic style report on this year's grand tournament, this year's games day and so on. So that was the original kind of pitch for what I was going to be doing. But then I, I spent more time. I did some of that, but I spent more time doing articles for white dwarf writing you know the famous regiments of the imperial guard was my i think my first piece that i wrote uh and i did not long after i started we did the armageddon uh worldwide campaign so you know armageddon was a world in in the imperium that was under attack all the time from orcs and this was a campaign where this legendary orc leader gasgul thraka had launched an invasion of Armageddon and the Imperial defenders were racing to, you know, stave off that invasion. So, and the outcome of that campaign would be decided by players throughout the world, feeding the results of their games, and we would see how the campaign would go. So, in order well, to give inc- that's incredible, and that was that was done like analog, like people like sending much, like, yeah. what was it? wow. Yeah, they, they I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know it got, got that big. They, I mean, most of the things we got sent were were paper. You know, people would send us envelopes. Right photographs or printouts of their battle reports and little stories about how it went and who won and so on and we would you know we tabulated it all and you know and one of my jobs was doing the i did the chapter approved column which was like people would write in with like homebrew rules and rules questions or what have you and i would reply to them all saying oh you know i loved it or give off them suggestions as how they could improve it or what we liked about it and so on um so that was my first job amongst on the armageddon campaign was creating the battlefields and the sectors and the places that the people would fight their games across. I did a like a gazetteer. I did a lot of world building and a gazetteer of the planet 
of the different continents, the cities, the the deserts, the fun locations, and so on, so that people had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of narrative hooks to say, oh, I really want to play play a battle at this place on the on the fire plains where the storm racks over the landscape, and you know, we you know we we did a whole bunch of little homebrew rules for hey, here's something you might think to do if you're fighting on the, the ice wastes or the the ash plains and so on. So I I built out huge gazetteer of the planet and the places and so on and i think at that point people i think they started to realize where where my interests actually lay it was not in more the journalistic side of things it was more the creative side the storytelling side and i, I gradually moved into that aspect doing a lot, i did a lot of color text for the intro and outros for battle reports uh, i wrote some of the battle reports i did a lot of the uh, the, the index of starties columns which was like a semi-regular monthly semi-monthly rather uh column that appeared in white dwarf which detailed uh space marine chapters you know the good the chaos and the loyalist ones so you'd get a full rundown of you know the home world their customs their battle doctrines their history their primark what have what did what did you do in the heresy granddad type thing um, <laughs> and that, that just was really you know my, my sort of auditioning calling card kind of head above the pad of it saying hey i want to do more of this narrative writing stuff and I, I so i did more of that and that that was very much what i did for a while until i i wrote a couple of short stories and took them down to and sent them to black library saying hey i, I really like these and i'd love you to consider them and you know luckily you know mark gascoigne who was the head of black library at the time you know he absolutely beat those stories to death with a hammer with red ink and what the hell is this? This is rubbish. Why are you doing this thing? And at that point, I was like, oh my God, I should never write again. Oh. But it was, it was actually, it was the best critiques. Normally, the, the critiques at that point were filtered through the editors rather than Mark. But for whatever reason, Mark's direct feedback came to me. And it was, when I first read it, I was like, oh my God, what the hell is this? But then once I put it down and came back to it, and then the next day, it was like, yeah, you know what? He's absolutely right. That is wrong. That is poor. That's bad. That should be moved. And it made, you know, it was a very valuable first lesson, you know, like what you might think is great. Once it survives contact with an editor, it's, you know, very much on you to try and fix it because they'll see things that you don't because, you know, you're so close to the keyboard and the screen that problems that are self-evident to anybody else just are not there. So I went right. away and wrote a lot of stories. I've wrote those stories back again with that Mark's feedback in mind and they were, you know, orders of magnitude better. Uh so that was a great lesson in how to proceed as a writer going forward. And then after that, I, in terms of rule design, I started working uh, closely with Gav Thorpe uh, when he was developing the Inquisitor game system. Uh, and so Gav had written the rules for that. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, a, it was a full game system for much more narrative, sort of a, a mix of RPG and uh, tabletop gaming. You know, hyper detailed rules for shooting injuries and so on, skirmish levels of stuff with you know bigger scale models. It was yeah, it was yeah, yeah, fun, tremendous fun, great game, and we we played a lot of that in the studio. Uh, and because it was a much more sort of free form in terms of how you played the game and how you you developed rules for it, you know, if the rules weren't maybe as balanced or they weren't maybe as you know uh, fair in some cases, as the rules for Warhammer and 40k needed to be, that was fine. So I, I, I cut my teeth on rule des game design for Inquisitor, developing a whole bunch of like some new vehicle combat and so on and so forth. 
And learning from that, you know, Gav and Andy Chambers and Pete Haynes at the time were just great teachers and great mentors to, sort of, you know, teach me about how games work. What And Jervis Johnson was there as well, obviously, and he's one of the, you know, the godfathers of gaming. So I learned a lot about that, about that structure of a game, how a game works, what's what's what makes a game fun and then which is a very nebulous concept but there's a lot of things that deliberately kill the fun in a game so it was like a lot of things to avoid and so on uh, and from there I, I started you know i did the, some stuff on the tau codex and moved into more hey you know what about this rule could you make maybe this unit here come up with some ideas for what their rules might be and then you know small steps small steps until uh, phil phil kelly andy chambers and i did the demon hunters codex and then we went yep. on to the Witch Hunters Codex, and then gradually, it was, I did, you know, I sort of graduated to like full games developer, and did I did the Empire Army book, uh, the Black Templars book, we did the, uh, the Necrons, the Tau, and you know the revised Tau one, and then we did uh, new editions of the game. So I ended up working on the rules for, the, I think it was, uh, you know, in fifth and sixth edition Warhammer, we did uh, 40k, we did some. I did a, a bunch of the rules uh, for that. So yeah, it was a kind of a gradual stepping. You know, there was Games Workshop was great for offering those opportunities to people to say, "Hey, do some work on this, and we'll see how it goes, and we'll help you and set you up for success and train you up to be, you know, the the, the next games developer and so on and so forth." Because we needed, you know, fresh blood in the ecosystem to keep it fresh and interesting and so on. So it was a great place for having lots of people there who were very willing to mentor you and who were obviously highly skilled in that space to yeah. give the best kind of mentorship you could hope for. Wow. I, that just hearing all that, I, you know, I, I think back to, to fandoms I've been a part of, you know, being, being a geek in 1997, you know, about something was a much different place than a kid who's coming into a fandom in, you know, 2015, 2020. Oh, right. And, yeah, and, you know, but and again, it's just it's more accessible to hear stories mm-hmm. about, you know, Games Workshop running worldwide campaigns that are collaborative and people are writing in, you know, prior to there being, you know, broadband Internet, you know, for, for the, you know, yeah. it, 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 it excites me because it's like I, you know, when I in 1997, like if, if I wanted to, like, hang out with my friends and talk about Dungeons and Dragons, you know, we had to go to cd hole in the wall comic shop that no one really knew about and didn't really have a sign <laughs> yeah. over here and there's nothing wrong with that that was fun but it's like it felt a lot more you know rebellious and like like punk rock you know what i mean like it's like hidden in the background you know yeah. um and then it was the you wouldn't find you know like even if they were into it you wouldn't find like a friend at school that you know was one of the jocks or one of the you know more like well like kids even if they were into it they weren't really telling you they were and there wasn't yeah, like a way a there, and there wasn't like a way to like meet as a community, you know, outside of like, you know, games workshop stores. I'm I'm bummed that those aren't as prominent in the United States, at least in my area of the country, as they were then, mm-hmm. because I would love to just go to one and hang out again now that I have this knowledge. Yeah. But it it's so amazing to me to hear that. I mean, whenever I read stories about like even like God, think back to J.R.R. Tolkien and people would write in and go, you know, hey this part of your book doesn't make sense now that you've, you know, 
we we've and he's like oh no you're right you know like i'm looking back on my theology and my world building and stuff yeah let me make a new edition and fix that and when i hear stuff like that like a creator that's so open to their community's feedback and their community's ownership as part of it that that to me is the most exciting thing and it sounds like it sounds like that ownership and that community aspect they want their workers and their writers yeah. and their creators to be part of that too. Oh, and and I sure. think that's sure. cool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, one of the things that's always appealed to me about that, about games workshop and, and riot as well is that inclusivity for the fans and the players and the readers is that, you know, almost everybody to, to a man, to a woman, everybody who I've worked with in terms of these fields has been a fan, has been a player as well as a creative within that space. You know, like every, all the guys and girls that I worked with at Workshop played the games, collected armies. You know, we'd go out to the pub and we'd be talking about the lore or the, a, a rule thing or the latest article in the magazine coming up. You know, we, we lived it as well as producing it. And, you know, Riot is the same. You know, most of the people that I work with there, they love the game, they love the stories. And I think that, that adds something. For, for all of us, for, for the players and readers, you know, that there's a sense of authenticity to the things that we do because we are, like I say, but for a twist of fate, you know, I, I, I'm, I am you, you are me. You know, I, I play, I was painting my broodlord last night. I was painting, I've got yes. some three, three intercessors on my painting handles to get going on later tonight. I, I play the game, I'm a fan, and I, I want the fandom and the IP to succeed, I want it to be cool and interesting because I love it. I'm part of it. I play it. I read it. So I don't. I don't want it. I don't want it to suck. I don't want to produce anything in it that sucks. Yeah, and I, and I, think and, and, that's... I and I speak to my, I speak to the readers a lot through through Twitter or Facebook or you know back in the before times at conventions and what have you. And, and yeah, yeah, yeah. conventions were always one of my f absolute favorite things to do because you would get real time feedback. You know, you would chat to people about the things that they loved in the books or they hated in the books. And, you know, you would get to see, okay, this is the kind of stories that are resonating with people. This is the kind of characters that they love. These are the emotional beats they like to see in stories or the things that we haven't explored yet that they'd love to see. And, you know, that some of the discussion, you know, some of the most fun discussions I've had have been whenever I've been to places, you know, Adepticon or, or games days or the weekenders and so on, you know, cause I, th I think that's just, you, you have to interact with your fans and not through any kind of social media strategy or anything like that or any bollocks like that. It's just, it's fun. It's fun because we're all fans of the same IP. And that that's what's most important, right? Is, you know, I I fear, you know, when you think about like a film a film production and, you know, things, mm -hmm. IPs in there that people love, I, I love when they get a director or an actor or someone involved that's a fan that's because... Into, yeah. Because it doesn't necessarily mean that every artist and every key grip and every person hitting every button needs to be thing. You know, some people there are just collecting a paycheck. I get it. But sure. when yeah. when the artist, when the creator that's interacting with you doesn't care about the IP, that that comes through. It becomes condescending. Oh, totally. And then and then they go and mess with something about it. Now, when a fan messes with a lore or something they can at least come to you as a fan and like explain hey you know and it's like all right cool we can accept that this guy's enthusiastic about yeah. it but when, but when someone comes in and bulldozes it and then doesn't care it's just like oh yeah. 
I think there's I think there's advantages and disadvantages to both. Um, yeah. You know, I think you know I think you're absolutely right. Having somebody who's a fan of the material when they're creating something out of that, they understand it. They understand that if I change this, this is kind of a big deal. So I need to do it deliberately and with forethought and make sure it's done sensitively. Whereas, you know, somebody who's maybe not as familiar with the material, see it with a lot more objective eyes. You know, they can bring a sense of detachment to the material to go, actually, yeah, we're all attached to this, but is it important? You know, what can I change that yes. would make this better? They're not as to the things i can't possibly change this and actually you know what maybe it would be better if you did so there's there's advantages and disadvantages to both although i i lean more towards the the idea of the creator or the, the director in this case being a fan because they get what the fans like because they are one too i agree I, I think having an editor like a, a foil to um you know to the writer that absolutely isn't that isn't necessarily invested the same way is a really good thing. Someone to go, Hey, explain to me why that's how that is. And then you go this and then they go, okay, but yeah, what is it's, it's fighting against the assumption, you know, cause we have, we have an, a lot of assumed knowledge. Uh, so the idea that well, everybody will get this is like, well, maybe they won't. So, you know, having your, you know, to go back to the heresy novels, having the Naismith on hand to say, <laughs> uh, you know what, maybe not. Maybe that's not such a good idea because maybe maybe not everybody is as familiar with this as you think they are. Oh, right, yeah, because we haven't explained that because I know what it is. And like like anything to do with teaching or creating, it's it's hard to remember what it was like not to know a thing. You know, when, when yes. you know it, it's like, well, obviously it's a thing. Obviously one and one is and two. But if you've never studied math or so you're four, you're like, well, does it? Oh, okay. And so and yeah, that's what, also... and that's go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. I was beginning to witter there, so carry on. No, no, it's right. And I was saying that that's what I found so, um, as I said at the beginning, so important about um, Ulrich from the Geeks with Shields' um, hypothesis on this is he said he thinks if if you have a passing knowledge of fantasy and a passing knowledge of tropes and constructs, you should be able to start with Horus Rising and kind of mm -hmm. get what's going on. And and I. Whoever, you know, was in the editing, because again, um, and, and this is going to get me to your book, that's what I was <laughs> uh, trying to work <laughs> myself towards there is, you know, it, it's amazing that it reads that way, especially being a prequel of sorts, because 40K yeah. is so many, you know, so many thousands of years later, you know, of, you, you know, I knew the name Horus, I knew because the book series is called the Horus Heresy, that means Horus does something not great. But I, <laughs> as soon as I got into the book, I realized, is this a red herring? Could not great be, oh, not great in what ends up being the antagonist size. And I love that the book kind of strings you along that for a bit of like those moral yeah. and ethical. Okay, well, you know, Horace is pretty goddamn charming and awesome. Like maybe, maybe I'm going to end this book being like, oh, it's a good thing you did this. And then they slowly get through the book and I'm like, oh, oh, this is heartbreaking. No. No, like, no, I don't, no, don't go here. And, um, it, mm. it, and, and I loved entering it as someone that didn't know what happened. You know, yeah. I knew the title tells me something not good is going to happen, but that doesn't mean that. And, and I think that's, the, that's the problem with the worst prequels out there. Um, is that yeah. they, they tell you stuff that you either already knew or they just end up being too safe because what comes after is too, um, too well, and that was something that we we always brought that to the t every time we had a gathering of the authors, 
uh, to plot out, you know, what the next bunch of novels were going to be. That was one of the ironclad pillars of our declarations was going to be, even though this is a tale a lot of the people who read these books are going to know, always bring something new to the table, always bring a, a, a deeper layer to the onion of the story. You know, you think, oh, I know how the story goes. These guys turn up, they fight, they, this happens, they move on. Okay, yeah, they will be the tent poles of the story, but there's going to be a lot going on underneath that that you did not know because the challenge in any story is surprising the reader, tell, surprising them with things, stories, emotional beats, characters that they didn't see coming that, that drives them into the next chapter, the next story beat, the next character arc, whatever it is. And that's doubly challenging in a story arc where most people assume they know the whole story. And I think we've, over the course of the novels, we've, we've, I think we've earned a level of uh, surprise and expectation in the readers that even though they know they're going into, oh yeah, the, the, the raising of Prosper, I know this story, that they're going to find something <laughs> new within that. They're going to find layers like, holy shit, I did not know that. And if, my God, if that tiny little bit hadn't happened, everything could have been different. And that that's earned us a, a level of, you know, readership when they go in and go like, okay, this is going to be good. Even though I know I think I know this, I'm, I know I'm going to be surprised. People now expect that they're going to find something new and delicious lurking just below the surface of everything they thought they knew. That's awesome. Now, the, the core, um, you know, team, you're obviously working for Games Workshop already when um, Horus Rising is being um, created by, by Dan. Yes. Um, but, you know, we're like, obviously these books, God, what is there, 70 some odd books or whatever. And, but, uh, you know, um, it like that core, like original three that all came out, God, mm -hmm. um, now that I'm looking at it in the same year. <laughs> is that uh, true? Yeah, they came up pretty much, pretty much one after the, you know, they were, wow. I think over the course of six months, I think they were, they came out. So I think Dan's came out in 20, no, it's 2005. I yeah, think and mine there came we out go. the following year. Yeah, because I remember because I went, you know, <laughs> I went for the site. The, the release of False Gods was possibly one of my one of the loneliest encounters I've had as a book signing. Because <laughs> I, I, it was a Saturday in I think two thousand six in the summer, and it was one of the it was a book signing in London, at Forbidden Planet, and it was the opening game of the world cup oh no and it was england were play england were playing brazil and it was a scorchingly hot day in london so it was the you know i had this you know double whammy of yeah nobody's coming to this shop today <laughs> so that's <laughs> i remember that vividly in the vividly in the summer of 2006 that happening oh my lord <laughs> yes they came very quickly and they were you know we, we put a lot of work dan uh we put a lot of work into how those books would interact with one another so that it felt like a, a hopefully seamless transition from you know book one to two to three through the trilogy to you know like it, that was the, really, those, the three sort of blasted the doors open for all the others to come to come through it really did and that's that that's i think what i was going to say is I, i'm imagining you guys were at least collaborating in some sense um you know but to make sure you know the characters yeah were, were consistent and things but um you know I, I i didn't look until right now to see how close they came out but um it it, it feels like a proper trilogy you know um and i think having mm -hmm. three different i think three different writers and three different styles dealing with the same stuff 
really um, works because because Dan's buildup is very, you know, this is an introduction book. And so it, yeah. it it's playing it's playing a really hard string to walk on of we got to keep people that already know what's going on interested. So that it throws around words very loosely and you kind of have to just go along with, okay, I, I think I know what that means. So I have to walk with it and you get through those first couple of chapters and then you just, it just grabs you. And, but again, like any trilogy, like fellowship of the ring, like things, it's the, this is the intro. We got to tell you who, you know, all of these people are and you have to immediately love these characters and, and then we get into your your book, and your book is like, okay, now this is a story with a purpose. This we're we're driving this forward into themes and what's going to happen to all these people, which really sets up the foil for everything to just be completely shattered apart in, in the third novel. Yeah. And so you, yeah. you guys did such a great job of uh, it, it. Never betrays what came before it, but each one has a very different driving force and speed of which yeah. it's trying to deal with um with the story and i i think any real good trilogy you know it, this has been the failure of some movies where they've filmed trilogies at the same time now something like lord of the rings needs it because it needs to feel yeah. that consistency but sometimes you go so this looks just like the movie before it there's no tonal change so everything feels like it's going at the same pace yeah. and and you know yeah, bringing um, this even, new to the table yeah, and even though the books, you know, sometimes have start up directly after, you know, the last one, you need to feel like something changed. Like there needs oh, yeah. to be some, and um, you know, I, I again, I, I want to, you know, I don't want to take up all the time on on Warhammer, even though that's my in my intro to you. So I want to get a chance quickly to, you know, go through, hey, what else has, you know, Graham McNeil done, um, you know, to give me a better understanding, so I know what sure. else to buy. But um, but I wanted to <laughs> say, you know. Just give me a little bit of an in insight into like like how was writing this novel like was it was it like you said was it a very lonesome thing or was it you know how many people are no. working on these things you know I mean the the abiding emotion I felt writing it was terror because uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know a I mean you're playing with the biggest toys so you don't want to mess that up and you know I had the extra in my head certainly pressure of okay following. Dan Abnett is never easy because Dan Abnett no. is a, a god who walks amongst us, literary-wise. But following him up when he was at the, at that time, certainly that he was at the top of his game. You know, Horus Rising was a, is a to me is one of my a masterful piece of work because it introduced the world, the tone, the feel of what the heresy was so brilliantly. And the concepts and the language that he put in there just really helped the rest of us because. You know, one thing I always think is that you, when you read a, a 40k novel or a heresy novel, you need to know, even if I stripped the title of them and the covers were gone, just by reading the first few pages, just the tone and the feel of it, you should know that I'm reading a 40k novel or a horse heresy novel. Just the, everything about the language, the setting, the feel and the thematics of that book should tell you one way or the other what you're reading. So Dan did a you know like a legendary job setting that up for the rest of us to follow. So uh, it was a, it was a terrifying experience not to mess up the <laughs> what Dan had set up for us. Uh, but luckily, I had a, a ton. I mean, Lonesome was it's absolutely the furthest from the, the truth in that. I had a, I was in conversation with Dan like at least every other day, either via phone call or email or text. Uh, I had 
people at Black Library, you know, like uh, Marco, Lindsay, and Nick, they're helping me if I had moments of like, I don't know what to do at this moment. How, what, what do you think? Let's have, a, let's have a, a chat and think, how can we get through this moment? What would be a cool thing to do here and so on? So I had, I had a ton of support through that book. Um, so lonesome wasn't a, certainly a, a word for it, you know, but the, the pressure to get it right so that I could pay off a lot of what Dan had set up in his book because, you know, what, what Dan did in his book that was so great, uh, well, one of the many things, was that he made Horace absolutely brilliant. He made him lovable. He made him a character who you would absolutely follow into hell if he gave the order because in writing so much 40k stuff you know codexes and novels we've we came to synonymize the name of horus with spitting on your oaths of loyalty betrayer yeah. oathbreaker villain arch fiend of chaos and that was you know word association when you mentioned the word horus boom those were the first things that came to mind whereas actually wait a minute he was he was the emperor's favorite son he was the best of them the brightest of them the most loyal the most faithful he was the one who could have whose character inspired half the trait half the space marines to follow him into treachery so he had to be this larger than life brilliant character who we all loved and that made writing his fall doubly hard because i read that book and i i really felt for horus i felt oh my god the pressure the demands that are being put upon you and, and you're doing it you're doing it without complaint and you're a funny character you are beloved you're clever and now i have to take you to the dark side shit and i do not want to do that because i'm yeah. you know and i think what, what what helped me write those scenes give what helped the pathos for it for me certainly was i didn't want to do it because horus had been set up to be such a wonderful character in the first book that when it came time to do bad things to him, I, I was writing that in the sure and certain knowledge that I didn't want to do that. I wanted him to turn away at the last moment to have Magnus talk him out of doing <laughs> what he was about to do, to have him realize that he was being played by the Chaos Gods, that the future they were showing him that didn't have him in it was directly caused by what they were egging him on to do. So... I think that that added something to those those moments where I didn't want him to turn, and hopefully the readers would you know feel that emotion coming through the page and be, you know, waving their fist at the sky, going "Damn you!" And well, it, it feels like he's being torn from you, like that. Absolutely, that's and and you know for for me not knowing where he was for it to feel that way for me. And then to talk to, you know, Axel and Ulrich and have them go, we know where this is going. And even, and I've read this book twice and it still charms me into believing that maybe this time it won't happen. Maybe this, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it's like when we watched, uh, we watched uh, uh, Stephen Denight's uh, Spartacus TV show uh -huh. from many years back. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Absolutely adore that show. Um, and even, you know, the quality of the writing in that was so good that even in the final episode, when uh, Pompey and Crassus have got the Servite, the, you know, the slave army on the ropes and they're going to destroy them, we know that Spartacus is going to die. Yep. Even then, even with all my historical knowledge and, and so on of this time, I'm look, reading, the, no, sorry, not reading, watching the show and going, maybe this one time, maybe he's going to do it. Maybe he's going to, no, he's not. Oh, bugger. But, you know, I was there in the moment thinking, I hope this one time 
everything's there. He can do it. He can do it. But no, he can't. And it's, it was the same with Boris. Like, I just kept thinking, maybe this, maybe I could just write this moment where it's like he doesn't fall. But then I'd have to, you know, slap myself upside the head and go, well, the Horus Heresy series is a very short series if he doesn't yes. turn to chaos. There's so many times, especially in the first novel and in the, you know, earlier stages of, of your novel, where, you know, yeah, we we were getting, you know, a feeling after a while that Horus has got some, you know, bad, bad things going on and his pride is getting the best of them and this and that. Mm-hmm. But what makes him so great as a character is there's times where he's giving advice to Loken and giving advice to other characters. And there's no forked tongue to that at all. That's literally like uh-huh. this, this moment has nothing to do with what I'm going to do other than, Hey, I'm actually still, even though I'm a troubled person and I'm susceptible to this play, that's going to end up happening on me to a very deep level. You listen to it and you go, no, he actually gave him good advice. Like that's very like, camaraderie and fatherly and wonderful and like i actually when i finished books went back and found those moments to try to remind me of like no he really was written so real that people are not black and white people can be gray gray the whole way through and it just takes one little very important push sometimes to just ruin them one of the (laughs) one of the books i read is a non-fiction book that uh, helped shape a, a lot of the things that I've written in the Horus Heresy, a book called The Lucifer Effect uh, by Philip Zimbardo, who he was the he was the guy behind the Stanford Prison Experiment, you know, with the, <laughs> the, 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 you know, the, the college students in the basement, you know, and half of them are guards, half of them are prisoners, and let's see how it plays out. And it, it very quickly spun off the rails when people started, you know, inhabiting their roles a bit too too deeply. But the, uh, so the first uh, half of the book is is all about the the prison Stanford prison experiment. The second half is very much exploring that. The theme of the book is why good people do bad things, and how easily we are swayed into doing bad things, and how easily we can be manipulated into doing those bad things. And the the one of the main takeaways of that is it's when you know because the, the the opening section uh, to book two and that is. It talks about you. You, you know, he says like, you know, you're going to read a lot of these examples, and you'll sit there and thinking, oh well, I would never do that. I would, I would, I could never hurt that other person or ignore this person or say these things or what have you. And he's like, well, statistically, that's really, really unlikely. You probably would, and you probably will if you come across these situations. Yes. And the point being is that if you, if you consider yourself, you think I would never do that or I could never fall that way. You are uniquely suited. To to falling that way because you're not taking any precautions not to fall you know by thinking of yourself as yeah i'm a flawed human being i can be manipulated i can make bad decisions you take steps not to make deliberate steps not to make those bad decisions but in thinking that you're immune to these kind of things you're far more likely to make those bad calls those bad decisions so that that there's a i mean obviously there's a lot more to it in in the book than that oh, and of course but it, it affected me colossally on a on a professional level and a personal level of recognizing a lot of the things that he described in this book going holy shit i've i've done that i've been that guy and going okay well that that changes now uh and it was it was a profoundly life-changing book for me to read uh in terms of me as a human being and me as a writer so it shaped a lot of how uh i wrote characters 
like Horus, like Fulgrim or Perturabo or or Erebus. You know, these these characters were were shaped a lot by that book in terms of the way, because I you know the way we depicted a character's fall had to has always been very important to me because we like I say the grayness the that you know that Breaking Bad thematic change you know the you know the Mr. Chips to Scarface kind of idea we wanted the the character uh, the Primarchs couldn't just oh they were tricked because that abrogated them of all responsibility for what they did yep. you know they had to consciously choose these paths and they had to have it in a way that it felt not it felt like hey, maybe i'd have done the same thing you know you, if it was a fall that was just like engineered through you know magic then it's like okay well that's not and if that's there's no motion to that i don't feel that shit maybe if i'd been in that situation i might have done that because all that most of them fall through small moments you know that that incremental addition of bad decisions you know which individually in and of themselves might be that stealing one grape out the store that's no big deal whatever but by the time you've done a hundred of those small steps you're a hell of a way hell of a further away from where you started you know Uh you were this good person and suddenly you're like oh wait a minute i've done all these terrible things and i've all come down a long way from the good person i thought i was and i didn't even notice it so that 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 played into a lot of the psychology of you know the the primarchs, but obviously you know you can and we should and did add in sort of elements of magic to that as well because you are dealing in a world, you know, a, a universe where the chaos gods exist. You know, where the power of the warp and psychic energies and manipulations like that can occur. So you know you you want some of that. So you know, hence you've got you know Fulgrim, you know the sword that well, I won't spoil it if you haven't got that far, but the sword that Fulgrim gets <laughs> and that starts whispering to him is. It's not. It's not. It's kind of a MacGuffin, but it's kind of also. This is vocalizing his internal desires and internal right. frustrations, rather than being the thing that's actually twisting the knife in him and saying, "Do this, do that." It's just. It's essentially. It's the the authority figure type thing that is giving him permission to indulge those bad impulses, and you know, as we know all too well in recent years, you know when when people are allowed to indulge their bad influences that can lead to very bad places for them and that's yeah, when you, fulgrim's free, fault for free will breaks down when um when when influence is involved and it's uh you know it, it, it's it's a crazy thing to think but you made a very important point yeah there's magic yeah there's chaos gods and demons but almost everybody that makes a universe changing decision in these books <laughs> makes it on their own free volition they yeah. might be swayed. They might be shown something false that makes them make that decision, but they're still making it. Yeah, you know, and that was very no. important to false gods that Horus chose that path. He wasn't yep. tricked into doing it. Because I remember some back in the, 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 some of the earliest incarnations of writing about the Horus heresy back in the Realms of Chaos books, uh, one of the earliest ones there had Horus possessed, you know, possessed oh. by a demon. And for exactly that reason, we very quickly discarded that because, again, it just—it's not his fault. And he's just a vessel; it's the demon, and you expect a demon to do good, uh, sorry, bad things. So, it's—it's it's more horrifying when a person makes a conscious decision to do a thing that is bad. You know, if you're possessed by a demon, it's like, well, pff, 
you know, you didn't have a choice, you know, so, you know, come, come home, all is forgiven. And that couldn't happen. You know, that was, that's not a dramatic story. You know, if somebody's not choosing to do a bad thing, a good thing in the face of adversity or whatever, then there's no drama. Absolutely. And uh, I can't wait, you know, to dive into more of the stuff that you've been involved in and written. Cause you know, just this trilogy and your one book, um, in it is just unbelievable. And it, it, it got me, it turned me a fan. It turned me a fan instantly. And that's not, not, not <laughs> to say that I wasn't, not to say that I wasn't influenced by my, you know, already, you know, fact that I'm a geeky guy, but you know, it, yeah. it definitely, it definitely helped that they were incredibly well written. Um, and not to spoil anything else you've, you've done for me. Um, but I, I'd like to move out of Warhammer and give you a chance. Yeah. We got, I don't want to keep you forever, but you know, to kind of, you know, enlighten me and enlighten the listeners that maybe only came here because they only know you from Warhammer. If, hey, this is what else Graham McNeil does um, yeah, or yeah. has done. But um, I wanted to give you, you had said um, before we started recording that, you know, we were talking about how Warhammer is the whole package. You know, it's the fantasy, it's the tabletop, it's the toy collecting, it's the video mm-hmm. games, it's the, you know, God, I think there's movies being made and stuff now too, or TV shows yeah. or whatever. It's the whole package. And you said how that's you said it's so important for a fandom for like adults and kids alike to be able to be part of. And you said you had some thoughts and I wanted to give you a chance to em- embellish yeah. or add I mean, to that. Some of, some of it is, some, you know, these are, these are none, none of these are original, you know, new thoughts. I mean, I've, I've had and talked to people about this a long time before, but we, uh, one of the things I used to, I used to chat to a lot of parents of, of the kids or the players when they were at games days and so on. They said, oh, it's, it's quite expensive, the hobby. And it's like, well, you know what? Yeah, it can be. But look at look at everything you can get out of this hobby. You know, the things that, you know, you, you, if, you're a, if you're a player in this new to this game and you're playing it, you're doing a lot of reading. You're reading the rule books. You're, you're abstract thinking. You know, like, how do I play this game? How what do I move? You're thinking ahead of yourself there you're painting you're collecting you're modeling you're converting there's discipline in there of collecting an army of painting an army of concentration it's a social hobby you don't play warhammer on your own you play it with a friend you play it as part of a club you go to the game store you paint models you learn there's so many aspects of this hobby that give back to you once you've bought your miniatures and you're painting them you know without games workshop without the hobby i would not be you know sitting in a room in los angeles talking to you you know i i've gained friends all across the world as players as fellow creators and so on uh you know me and my son at the weekends we play kill team we paint toy soldiers together uh-uh. it, it gives back so much more than you can you put in you know it's it's i i fundamentally believe that mm-hmm. And in this, you know, in these, you know, COVID times, you know, I, 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 you know, I struggled a little bit, you know, to build to the beginning, at the beginning of this period, I, I struggled to adapt to the new world of not seeing friends, you know, because I worked in an office, I, I saw my pals at work every day, you know, I would cycle to and from work, you know, the kids were at school, they were doing their things, you know, my wife was out seeing her pals and doing things. So when we were all locked up, you know, my my brain kind of turned inwards on itself a little bit, and I, I, I found eventually like you know, my, my kind of happy place was sitting down, miniatures, stick some music on, stick a podcast on, 
and just paint for several hours and that just was a huge like pressure valve decompression that allowed any kind of the tensions of the day to, to bleed away and the, the the bonding experience of playing the game is tremendous you know like i've i've played people that i've never met before and we've gone on to become great friends across the tabletop you know, my son Evan and I, we play Kill Team together. We're building our, our Tyranid army up into 40k scale. Yes. We're going to play that. And, you know, we've had we've had tremendous fun playing that. And these are, you know, things that I hope he will take on into the future. Because as a, as a, I think playing games is a great way to socialize people and develop their levels of emotional intelligence, that level of... You know, as Jervis always used to say that, you know, when you play a game, when you sit down to play a game with someone or a bunch of people, you're entering this unspoken social contract that we are here to have fun. We are here to do something enjoyable, social, that involves back and forth between us. And we're all going to come out of this evening going, that was fun. I got to know my, my friends better. I got to know myself better. I, you know, because gaming, gaming can bring out, you know, like a lot of things can bring out the best and the worst in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we always strive to make our, our tables, you know, this is a place where we're all here to have fun. And if you lose this time, it's fine. You'll win another time. If I've won 10 games in a row, I'm going to be set up for 10 losses the next time. You know, it teaches you to, you know, in a very limited and safe way, you know, to, to roll with the punches. You know, hey, sometimes you're going to lose and that's okay. And that's, you know, maybe and maybe I'm reading more into things, the games than that. No, that's... Games are a great way to sort of, you know, as I say, if you really want to know the character of a person, play a game against them. Of it's, anything, you know, you know, not just 40k, but you, it's a great social experience where you can just have fun and grow and learn about other people. and Which, is, again, feels a bit deep for gaming, but I, I no. fully believe that. No, it, it's... And, and I say this about... M- any any interaction with a purpose like yeah i'm i'm having you know the time of my life right now talking to you right but at the <laughs> at, at some at some point and i and i mean that but at some point you know th- this is this is my show there's a pr- level of professionalism you know even though we're just goofing off about stuff that we like <laughs> that, that i have to carry so there's there's a level of of switched on and engagement yep. that you and i have to have and i i look at it as you know again ne- neither of us are you know um, to have degrees and being able to do this, but I, I look, a, look at it as therapy and not in a, you know, there's anything wrong with us kind of a way, but it's, you are bringing something to the table, um, so to speak that, like you said, it's a social contract. It's a, mm-hmm. there's mutual respect yeah. here. One of us might say something or believe in something or do something that the other guy doesn't agree with, but we're friends. And I, I feel like sometimes you can hang out in the same room with somebody for years on end. You could be a roommate with someone in college for years on end. And if you don't sit down and like play a game together or work on a project together or do something, you never really know each other. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and that, that's, that's kind of, I think sometimes the way people can be, can be duped into, you know, they learn something without learning it and having a safe place to work it out. You know, you learn yeah. something about a friend that almost might be shocking. It's like, well, I've known you for so long and, and it doesn't have to be something bad. It's just something yeah. like, wow. Like, but sometimes you get it in the game, like when they role play and you realize, oh, wow, you know, that person 
you know, might be ignorant of some issue. And I don't mean that in a negative way, just like this gives me an opportunity to teach them, but through like the characters in the game. And then it's, it's not like you're not calling them on their crap in real life, but we learn together or, you know, the thing that I found with, with D and D and with what I know of Warhammer, that's different about playing a game online with someone that's competitive. So, you know, you move into something more like a, uh, World of Warcraft, League of Legends, you know, things yeah. like that that are less, you're not playing against each other, you're together playing against something else. Yeah, turns you have to come into, together as a team for that. And there's, and, and, I, and I, I hate, I don't hate, that, that's a strong word. It bothers me when, you know, you have games that, you know, require you to be the best from day one, yeah. that I think can, it can have the opposite effect of, you know, you don't end up learning stuff about each other. All you know is it might reinforce your already existing um, lack of self-esteem where I'm not as good as everybody else. Yeah. And instead, you can you can come to a table of Warhammer and have a passing knowledge and play against an expert. And if you go into that social contract together, it's, we're going to learn, for, you know, that guy might get better at, hey, well, I'm, I'm exercising my ability to show someone how to play. It's reminding me of how good... I am and how much I know, but also it's learning, Hey, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more open to people, you know? And, and, and I like that, like gentlemanly, like friendly agreement of we're working through this together, you yeah. know, even, even if it's competitive, we're working through it together. And, <laughs> I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I play, if I'm, if we're playing Warhammer or whatever we're playing, you know, you, you play cause you want, you want to win. You want your guys yeah. to do well, but if you don't win, no biggie. I mean, I, I always, I always learned, you know, I, which is just as well because I, you know, back in the studio days, I rarely won many of my games because I was <laughs> playing against a lot of pe- people who were a lot better than I was. But I, I learned more from my defeats than I ever did because when you when you win a game, you just sort of walk away going, "Hey, I won." But when you lo- when you lose, you walk away going, "Okay, why did I lose? Oh, maybe I didn't use these guys as well as I should have done, or maybe that unit wasn't as effective. Maybe I need two more in the units." But you know, you would always have a, you know, you'd always have that sort of post-battle discussion with your pal, you know, sitting go to Bugman's for a pint after work and chat about the game or what have you, or cool moments within it. And yeah, I mean, I, I the uh, we when I lived when I back when I lived in England, we had a, our Wednesday night gaming, uh, mostly for role playing. You know, we'd play board games if, if for whatever yep. reason we couldn't get enough people to, you know, people couldn't turn up that day or whatever. But we we did role playing games for basically every Wednesday for fifteen years, and wow. the, the group the group that I played with you know and a few faces came and went and what have you as people moved away moved in sort of thing, but that core group of gamers is like some of the some of the best best memories I have and some of the best friends I have came out of those sessions and you know to this day, and we all know we got to learn so much about each other from how people would play a moment how vulnerable they could sometimes let themselves be and knowing that that you know we had such a trusted safe space that anyone we could go off the rails completely in terms of how a character might be played or how a situation might go because we knew it was was absolutely safe to do that and you know it was brilliant and i I miss that group terribly because obviously they're all still back in the uk just now yeah wow well um Real, realizing that I think, uh, you know, God, j- just meeting you for the first time, but I think we could talk for, for hours on this. Many hours, um, I'm sure. 
yeah, no, and and I appreciate it. And, and like you said, op- open invite to 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 come back this way anytime, especially oh, if you have something okay. to promote or if you just want to chat. But um, I wanted to to you know we don't have to go in depth on any of this, but I, I wanted to understand you know the you, you're working for Games Workshop that you know that was your job. You did this, you did these books, but you've done yeah. you've you've branched out, and even I'm I'm thinking in parallel with a lot of that too. Some of yeah, it, I've done, I've what done. what brings you from False Gods, you know, to 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 today. You know, and we can do this quick, yeah, but you know, many a many a varied path. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I worked, I, I left, I ended up leaving Games Workshop in like the summer of two thousand six, uh-huh. uh, for you know a variety of reasons. You know, like, I think paramount amongst it was that, you know, I was, I was, I think by that time I'd written seven and seven or eight novels by that point. My lord, and that was. <laughs> That was proving to be, for me, certainly, the, the biggest thing that was occupying my time. Not time so much as my my interest. I was like, yeah, I love novels. They're such big, monolithic projects that take, you know, generally speaking, a chunk of time. And there's a, so many plates to juggle. And the, the challenge of a novel is something that I loved and still love. So, and they and I was writing more and more of them. And that was becoming the focus of my attention. I was like, you know what, I, this, I think this is really what I want to do. So I, I left Games Workshop and for the next 10 years uh, was a full-time freelancer. I, I wrote uh, comics, I wrote novels, I wrote short stories, I wrote bits and pieces for video games over the next 10 years. Um, and let's see, so I'm, I mean, I'm primarily, you know, the bread and butter of what I did was, was yeah, it was for Games Workshop, for Warhammer 40k, Horus Heresy, uh, Warhammer Fantasy. But, uh, I, you know, I did other, you know, as a freelancer, you know, the good, that's the advantage you have is you can vary your output, you can work for different people. So, I, yes. Uh, one of the, I mean, I, I worked for Blizzard uh, when just in the, re- up, coming up to the release of StarCraft 2, uh, wow. I did a novel, I did a novel for Blizzard uh, called I Mask, which is a, an exploration of uh, the Emperor, you know, Arct- you know Arcturus Mask and Angus and, what eventually ends up with Valerian Mengsk. So, you know, because I was, I, you know, I was talking to uh, Chris Metzen at Blizzard at the time, and he was like, well, you know, we don't really know much about his background, and there's some bits of the background that we can't, you know, quite square the, you know, square peg round hole. So, you know, have at it, free reign, you know, well, that's, do something cool that, in the background. That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> you know uh, what I mean? Well, I, I love well, do, well, guess what I've done before, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. So, so that that was a lot of fun, and that, that seemed to go down well. Um, I did a I worked I did a, a trilogy uh, for Fantasy Flight Games in their Arkham Horror universe. Yep. So I've been a, I'm I am and remain to this day a big fan of the Cthulhu Mythos. Uh, I'd love that cosmic horror vibe, and Arkham Horror is, is a game that we played a lot of. So when they said like you know we'd look, we're Fantasy Flight, we're branching into novels, and you know we know you love all this sort of stuff. So would would you care to to work on it? Because one of, one of the editors who I'd worked with on the StarCraft book was also uh, working in editorial for Fantasy Flight, and she sort of brought me over to them and said, "Hey, this this guy might be a good fit." And so yeah, I did a, a tr- the, the Dark Waters trilogy, a sort of you know a, a sort of slightly pulpier uh, yep. version of Lovecraftian horror, because obviously it's based on on the game of Arkham Horror, which you know you can, you could tackle the Mythos with flamethrowers and Tommy guns and so on. Um, so that was great fun. Um, I think we also done stuff. You know, I, I did. 
I've done, I mean, mostly my, my output beyond those ones has been uh, I did some role playing stuff for Cubicle 7. Uh, I did some one off things here and there. I did a story for uh, the anthology uh, Mech Age of Steel, which is you know, a sort of companion piece to one they did on uh, giant kaijus. So they did a, a, a companion anthology that was all about giant mechs and in battle and so on. Although I I did I did set mine in sort of, uh, ancient Rome sort of in AD sixty in in <laughs> Great Britain, uh, which is a lot of fun to do, and you know dabbled in well, did the Shakespeare versus Cthulhu anthology that John Green put out for Snowbooks, which is great. I did a sort of uh, retelling of Macbeth through a Lovecraftian mythos lens and so on. Damn. Uh, and then that then that brought that brought me to some friend you know like a friend of mine Mark Gibbons. And Aunt Reynolds, they were they were working at Riot Games, and they reached out and said, "Hey, look, we're we're really ramping up our narrative output, uh, and we need writers for that. And you know, would love it to you know to get a conversation going with you and some of the senior leadership here to see if it'd be a good fit. See you know if you'd like to move to the U.S. You know, and I was like, oh, okay, that's that sounds interesting. And you know, I was a I was at a point in sort of life and career where it's like, you know what, that's that wouldn't be an unappealing prospect, actually. You know, our kids are young enough that it wouldn't be as, you know, wrenching a transition for them to move. We could do it, and you know, hey, if we move for over, we'll, we'll rent our house out in the UK while we're gone. If it turns out that this is not a good move, we can just come back. No harm, no foul. And the idea of like, okay, this sounds like a great opportunity because because I went over to LA and met the folk from Riot, and I, I loved the. I love the passion of what they were trying to do, what they were, what they, the problems they knew they had and they wanted to fix, and you know how they wanted to develop their their universe into something really cool. And you know, I I I, I knew a little bit of league and lore at this point, but not a huge amount. But when I read into it, I was like, okay, there's a lot of there's a lot of things here that are you know not maybe as developed as they would they could be or should be, but the underlying premise of the world and its characters I thought was great. I, I loved it. I thought there's a lot of potential here. This could be something really, really interesting. So, you know, luckily, you know, they liked me, I liked them. So they offered me the job and yeah, we came over to California in the summer of twenty fifteen. And that's so we've been here just over about five and a half years now. <laughs> so it's yeah, wow. it's working out okay. Working out okay, so I, you know, I, I joined as a one of the senior writers in uh, League of Legends uh, or Riot, rather, uh, in the narrative discipline, and I've worked there ever since, just working on, you know, working on short stories, building out character bios, story arcs, and although the first first team that I worked with for Riot was the world building team, uh, because the Riots or the the League of Legends IP, you know, its world was kind of it was a bunch of kind of jarring kind of disconnects put together mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the, some of it didn't quite gel as to in a thematic coherent whole, you know, it's like, well, why doesn't this steampunky nation with lasers here? How does that exist with this, you know, knights and castles and dragon realm over here? How do these, how do these worlds interact? How do they make sense in a fantastical yet believable way? So, you know, along with several other, writers and a lot of artists we in the first few years at riot were spent you know building that out and figuring out how these wildly different uh 
areas and regions and factions and champions could actually exist in this world and make sense, you know, while not losing that level of, you know, crazy wildness to the IP that was there from the very beginning. It's like, okay, how come this makes sense that we could tell long form stories or animated TV shows? How can we make this make sense to people, to players and ourselves? Uh, and we, we put a lot of work in to make sure that that would be something that players would want to invest in in terms of time and effort and play. And, you know, there's lots of other things competing for their attention and eyeballs. So can we make a world that's compelling and emotional to them and resonant? And that, you know, that's that was the, the first few years of what I did at Riot, along with, you know, in as part of the world building team. And where we're at just now is, you know, we're, we're, we're building... A, you know, now that we've got a world, you know, and it's not finished, you know, that kind of world building developmental work is never over. You know, it's a living, breathing place. We're, we're telling a lot more ambitious stories within that because obviously you can't really tell those kinds of stories unless the, you know, the rock upon which they stand is solid. You know, if, if it's quicksand and changing all the time, the stakes don't feel real because, you know, it's, well, this could change tomorrow. So once you've got the, the solidity of a world ready with you know enough flex built in for cool changes for events that move the timeline and the world forward that's when you can start building it out so uh that's kind of where we're at just now wow yeah i uh i've i've again like it's strangely with all of the things that you've you know touched game wise i've seen many an hour of league of legends played you know, just hanging yeah. out with friends or someone's in the garden. It's, it's something I'm going to have to pick up sometime. I, I, I have an addictive personality, so I've attempted <laughs> to avoid MMORPGs my whole life because I'm, I'm terrible. But yeah. you know, j- just hearing you talk about it and seeing, you know, um, I, I didn't know how long it had been around. I, di- I didn't know it was, oh, you know, late yes. 2000s or, you know, of the, the 10, first decade. It was a 10-year anniversary of League last year. Yeah. And I, you know, so, uh, you know, just, just, you know, doing the research really quick before we talk, just to make sure I knew a little bit. And it's, you know, that's such a cool thing to get, you know, you came in like in, in the middle of it, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm. Hey, and, and I won't even call it a course correction, but you know how you describe it. It's like, okay, we, we need to keep building this and keep it interesting and make it connect. We've, we've built this great foundation, but we need, we need someone that understands how to help pull all this stuff together. And I think, that's a fascinating thing to be able to get into the middle of, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't like I say, it wasn't just me. You know, there's a, a, yeah. a good team to, to do that. But yeah, taking, you know, because a, a lot of what was already there as, you know, as malleable as it might be, or you look at something and you think, I, I don't think that's very good or whatever, a lot of people like it. And, and there's, yeah. you have to, whenever you make changes to an IP or a setting or a character, you've got to do it with a, a high degree of sensitivity because what one person might think that sucks. What, why would anyone like that? 10 other people go, no, that's the thing we love. Uh, or, you know, one man's meat is another man's poison sort of thing. So you've got to, whenever you build out things like that or make changes, you have to understand that character, that section of the world. You have to understand why people either loathe it or love it. And if you do make changes, you want to do it in a way that does not, fundamentally alter the core truth of what that character is or the thing that the you know slightly derpy thing that people might absolutely love where you know my sensibility might go oh my god can we not just get rid of this daft whatever 
But you know, I was like, no, people love that and they will freak out if you change that. Oh, well, okay, that's great. Okay, now I've learned something. Now I understand, you know, understanding something I try and, you know, tell, you know, like my kids is like, you know, just because you don't like something doesn't mean it's bad. You know, you you like, uh, you know, there's, there's YouTube channels and uh, cartoons on Netflix. Sometimes they watch and I'm watching it going, this is, this is just garbage. I can't stand oh, this. Oh, yeah. But then they go, no, we love it. And, it's, and there's things I like and watch. They go, oh, man, this is just the most boring thing ever. So it's like, okay, yeah, you know what? That, that level of empathy for the player and reader and the consumer of this this fictional world, you know, I their choices might be different from mine, but their choices are just as valid. And I can't, and I have to respect that. And I have to empathize with what they love or what they hate and figure out a way to navigate that. And I know when I say I, I, I mean like, all the other writers, the all, royal the other artists, yeah. all the other creators, you know, like I think one of Riot's strengths is that they are laser focused on the player and not in a sense of how can we milk them, but it's how can we make this experience better for them? Because, you know, ultimately League of Legends is a free to play game. Yes. You know, it's you, anyone, you know, like you could, you could be, you could pick it up tomorrow and in years to come, you could be the world champion and never have spent a penny on League of Legends. So the idea is, you know, but then you think, well, why would anyone play? Why, how, how did a free-to-play game become one of the biggest video game companies in the world? By consistently delivering things that players want. By consistently putting the player at the forefront of every decision that we make in terms of story, instead of content, in terms of gameplay. It's like, okay, what will make this a great experience for the player? That they will want to keep coming back. That they will want to consume the next story or play the next champion it's just by making you know it's, it's it's a simple thing simple not easy you know make good shit and people will come to you yeah it's that simple and and and, and the, the free-to-play thing i think is you know it, it's the direction that the world as the world gets more empathy and respect for i can spend this little bit that if a million of me are spending this little bit then that company does incredibly well and keeps giving me all of this value. Whereas the old version of consumption and capitalism is they want me to spend all of this up front and then never interact with me again, which is the, which is the old way of, of video games being done. Not to say that video games didn't want, you know, the, the user, but it was a, it was a death of the author thing. This game's out there and it's done. You, you make it what you're going to make it. And I, you know, I, I thought the, the beginning of it, you know, I had a cynical view of it at the beginning of, okay, now all games are online and there's all of this, you know, oh, they can just patch it, which means the game doesn't have to be finished when it comes out. But at the same time, taking that cynical hat off for a minute, now the developer and the user get to live with each other through the game forever mm-hmm. or for as long yep. as they're willing to support it. And that, you know, it makes it, much more like that, you know, pen and paper sending in, like you talked about with Warhammer of, you know, well, I just defeated, you know, me and my team, this just happened in the game we played. And the creator goes, well, I'm going to let that all alter the course of events in this worldwide thing. And now that's happening in a real time setting is so Mm -hmm. cool (laughs) to to me. Um, And that's something we we couldn't have had even, you know, 15 years ago, really. I mean, we had World of Warcraft, but, you know, that like even, you know, it wasn't there wasn't, you know, a 
you know, it wasn't as widespread and the fandom wasn't as accepting of it. Now there's microcosms of groups. And, oh. and I see yeah. this happening, you know, when you go to something like PAX. I, you know, the yeah. last thing, yeah. the last thing I did before the whole world got sick was go, go to PAX East. Me and my brother did a panel there and um, it was really cool. And standing in line, I sit there and go, every single one of these people standing in line 20 years ago would have been ashamed to have people know that they were, you know, as excited about what they're cosplaying as today or, you know, what they invest their money and time in. And now they're all into different things. But it's all like a nodding and a mutual like, yep, yeah, yep, I, I accept that same you. You're, you're cool, broad and church, exactly. Ex- and, and I and well, I think you know, as as the teaching says, the geek will inherit the earth. It's 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 so positive, and and I think it needs to um it needs to infect other things, <laughs> and, yeah. and I think we could be doing yeah, a lot I mean, better. You know, as like any fandom of these things, it's it's not without you know its problems here and there uh-huh. and so on. You know, some some big, some small, lots to lots to fix and so on. But as a as a whole, yeah, it's I, I've never found it to be anything less than welcoming and accepting. But then, you know, I I'm in the I'm in a demographic that ha- moves through this world and gaming worlds without issue. So, and I know a lot of people do not have yep. that privilege that I that's, do. And my our job is to make I our job is to make this hobby, this play, this gaming this cosplay, this whatever fandom are in as inclusive, as diverse, as welcoming, as as a home as it could ever be for the that we've had, that everybody gets to do that. That's that's awesome. And, you know, as someone who said he wants to put positivity out onto the web, I think that's a perfect positive note uh, to uh, to end our conversation on. So, Graham, what else? What else? Is there anything going on outside of what we just talked about or any shout outs you want to give the 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 um the microphone is yours as it were to reach out <laughs> just let let people know or the, the the board is yours you know whatever whatever terms we could use the the nine by nine setting we, we, we could make many puns but just you know go yes. for it um to be honest i just thank you for having me on it's been lovely to talk to you we can say we could we could spend the whole day yapping about geeky stuff about movies models and so on uh literally i just want to say to everybody be safe be sensible wear a mask and let's keep all keep ourselves healthy and when this is all over let's get together roll some dice and i hope i can see you all at a games day a pax and adepticon or whatever and we can trade beers and swap stories of games Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? When the world is less crazy, Graham, when the world is less crazy, Graham, if you find yourself on the East Coast for a con, please reach out. I would love to buy you a beer and talk more. That would be great. And one of the the holiday or the trip we were planning to take before, you know, Captain Trips got involved was uh, touring Lovecraft Country up in the Great Commonwealth. Uh, well, lo- I, you know, you know what, since you brought it up, I'll say one more 30 second thing. Yes. I don't think too many people know that that's, um, that, that, but Danvers state mental hospital was the, yep. uh, was the Arkham inspiration Asylum. for Arkham. And oh, yes. when I, when I used to play D and D we played in the Kirkbride building cause they oh, the condos wow. Yeah, and my friends lived there and we used to play D and D in the Kirkbride building so cool. and and Arkham Horror and, and thousands of other games, you know, but uh, that, um, oh man, I'm so glad you said that. So, you, 
so let's just put a pin in Chris O's Graham McNeil a beer. You guys all heard that. Yep. And yep. Um, I'm marking that up. And thank you so much for, for shooting the My shit pleasure. with me today, sir. My pleasure. Um, Anytime. And let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. And go, go enjoy your family and go enjoy um, being safe. And I really appreciate those words because that's, that's all we can do. Be safe. Don't be selfish. Save the world, everybody.